Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we just echo the words of that song. Because this morning we're delving into a subject that is going to challenge us and one that's caused a divide in many in the body of Christ. So God, I want to be humble. I want to be gracious. But God, your word is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and the spirit, even between the joint and the marrow. And sometimes, as we sang in the song, Run to the Father, when the surgeon makes an incision, it's painful. But the pain is not to bring harm, it's to bring healing and good. And we recognize this morning that sometimes you, who are the great physician, the the perfect surgeon, sometimes you have to cut into the body to remove impurity. And God, the enemy, has done a great job at sowing impurity into the body of Christ. And because he's sown impurity and we've not been aware of his schemes, we have quenched the Holy Spirit. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so if that is true, why does much of your church walk in bondage? It's because of the lies of the enemy, of the impurity in the body of Christ. And so in days like today, in times like these, when our world seems to be falling apart with pandemic and unrest, where does the world turn? It's not to the church. The church who is the light of the world, the hope of glory, the one with the message that can truly bring freedom and salvation and and peace. The Bible pronounces the word that went out when Jesus was born, which was peace, goodwill toward men. The peace that comes through having a relationship in Jesus Christ, the transforming power in the life which is born again in Christ. God, that is not sought after after the world because we have become a dull voice in a crowded world. It's because your love isn't on display in our lives the way it should. Your power is not on display in our lives the way it should because many of us walk defeated in dysfunctional lives. And so the world looks at us and says, why should I go after that? And it's not because your promises aren't true. It's not because that the word of God is invalid. It's because we have chosen to believe another way. We have aligned ourselves with lies and dissension of the enemy. And today, God, I ask you to open the wounds to cut out the impurity, to open our eyes and give us faith that we wouldn't stand against, but we would come into agreement with your holy word. And today, God, revival would begin in the midst of us. Lord, as we prayed even before walking into this place and as 
couple of us walked around this room praying and just calling on heaven. God, I ask you now in Jesus' name that you would come as you've already been ministering, God, that you would intensify your presence, that you would manifest, that you would pour out your spirit, God, that we would all be different because of your glory. God, I'm okay with you even showing up and putting a pause on this service and doing what you want to do. At any time, God, it's yours. This whole moment, these moments that we're together, because we don't need to go through another religious process. We don't need to punch in our spiritual time clock. God, we need an encounter with the living God. So speak now, Lord. Bring us into your purposes and your will this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in week six of this series, Healing of the Nations, and we're now in this section of this series as we're looking at the subject of healing, talking about if God's will is that all should be healed, why don't some get healed? Why, why do some people get healed and others go unhealed? And we looked at the, the main reason or the primary reason why healing doesn't come, and that's because the curse of death is still alive and well in the world. People die because of the presence of sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they unleashed a curse upon the entire world, even all of creation. The, the scientists point to a law called the second law of thermodynamics, which means everything is heading towards dysfunction and chaos. Even in the realm of science, it tries to divorce itself from faith. It sees everything is heading towards chaos and disorder. Something was unleashed in the cosmos when we rebelled against God, and when Jesus returns, he is going to make all things new again. But until that day, we live in this reality of the curse. We live from day to day. We also looked last week how many will call on God to, to heal. Many will go through their religious ceremonies. They'll put the name of Jesus on the things that they do. But because there's no real identity, there's no real, real authentic relationship with Christ, it's merely a religious tradition in their lives that they're that their life is just going through the spiritual motions, thinking if I do these things, then I'll be what God wants me to be, and, and I'll have a relationship with God. When I get to heaven, I'll get let in. But they're devoid of a true, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. They actually lack the authority to wield the name of Christ with power. That the name of Jesus is powerful, but on the lips of those who belong to him. The ones with authority. You can't just put Jesus' name on something and have it belong to the Lord. It must belong to the Lord. And there are many false ways, false traditions. Many use religion like witchcraft, ritualistic witchcraft. If I pray these prayers, then this outcome should happen. And that's not the way it works. Healing comes because of who you are and who is in you, not because of what you do. This week, we're beginning to dive into what I consider more of a dicey conversation. It's one that many shy away from, many pastors and teachers shy away from, because depending on how you, you present it, it can offend people. See, it's easy to offend an insecure heart. It's easy to offend an insecure heart. When your heart is insecure and truth is presented, you take it personally and you shy away from it rather than press into it. But when your life is filled with the peace of God and the truth is presented, it causes a conviction that 
moves you closer to the Lord. And this is why Solomon in the book of Proverbs says to guard our heart above everything else because it determines the course of your life. It's important as the body of Christ, as believers, we guard our hearts so that we don't let offense push us away from Christ, but we allow conviction to draw us closer to the Lord. Amen. We need to guard our hearts. And today we're going to try to look at the next two reasons why I see in Scripture as to why people don't get healed. And these issues are issues of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, I want to look at this verse briefly. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today, so I encourage you to take notes in your worship guide. The verses are also found in the YouVersion Bible app in our events page, so if we go through them too quickly for you, they'll be there for reference. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, this is where the Bible defines what faith is. And the Bible says, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Verse 2 says, through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. Now, as we look at what faith is, I always struggled with this verse because it was kind of confusing. Other, the King James says it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. I'm like, those are great words, very poetic, but what does that mean? In simple terms, this is what this passage means. It means faith is the tangible manifestation of a genuine belief and trust in God's promises. It is a tangible, it's tangible, you can quantify it. And it's a manifestation of the genuine belief and trust in God's promises in your life and what you believe in. If you truly believe something, it will have an effect on your life. Right now, every one of you are in agreement with the belief that the chair you're sitting in is going to hold you. You know how I know? Because if you didn't believe that, you'd be out of there like that, believing you're going to fall. So because you're seated, that is a tangible manifestation of the belief that you believe the chair is going to hold you. If you did not believe that, the tangible manifestation would be the getting up and finding a new seat. Faith is not just believing or agreeing with the Bible. We can look at the Word of God. It says Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that? Amen? You agree? You believe that? Faith is acting on that belief. Faith is a two-sided coin of belief and action. That's why James says faith without works is dead. Faith is both together. It is believing, agreeing, and then acting on that faith. You can see it in a person's life. And this is important for us to understand because in Hebrews 11:6. 6, the writer of Hebrews says this, it's impossible to what? Say it out loud. It's impossible to please God without faith. You can agree with Scripture until you're blue in the face, but without faith, the acting and believing, it's impossible to please God. It takes both acting and believing, trust and action to bring pleasure to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's impossible. This is so important for us because many of us live a life that says, if I just say I agree, then that is enough. And it's not enough. Religion says, do these things and you're good to go. But God wants more than just assent or agreement to what he says. He wants a life in agreement. He wants a heart that pulses with his. 
He wants you to act on the very things you say you believe. Paul in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, says anything not born out of faith is sin. This is how serious it is for the body of Christ. Anything not born out of faith is sin. That means if you're not walking in faith, you're walking in sin. You're violating conscience. You're violating the very things you believe to be true. So if you believed that chair is not going to hold you and you're sitting in it, so to speak, it's sin because you're violating your conscience. Many people, pastors especially, I've had conversations with pastors even in, in our city talking about healing in, in regards to different people we've praying for who are uncomfortable with even talking about the idea of faith being connected to healing. And they'll cry foul when someone suggests that the reason why someone isn't healed is because they didn't have enough faith to receive the healing. And it's true, I believe in agreement, that it is wrong to tell somebody who's praying for healing that the reason why that their loved one didn't get healed is because they didn't have enough faith. I think that's cruel, and I think it's mean. Faith has a part in healing, but it's not the whole part. So to tell somebody that their son or daughter passed away because they didn't have enough faith, or their spouse passed away, or their loved one passed away because they didn't have enough faith, I believe is dishonest and it's cruel. But I also see how faith does play a part in healing. And many have rejected this idea that faith has anything to do with healing because of these, I would say, sins in the church, these overstepping or, or miscontextualizations of passages that cause people to wound one another when it comes to personal situations in their lives. And many have rejected this idea that faith has anything to do with healing, and they chalk it all up to the sovereign will of God, removing any responsibility for healing out of their hands. And just saying things like, well, if they're going to be healed, God is going to have to do it. It's up to the Lord. And I believe God is sovereign. And I see this common trend. It, you see this common trend in the church today, that this is a common belief that it doesn't really matter what I do. If God, they're going to get healed, God's just going to heal them because you can see this in the way we pray. Most prayers for healing go like this. Father, if it's your, please heal so-and-so. Father, if it's your will, please heal so-and-so. You know, I heard a pastor say once, and it stuck with me. I don't remember who it was that said it, but they said, you don't have to ask God for the things he's already given you. You don't have to ask God for the things he's already told you in Scripture. You don't have to pray, God, is it a good idea for me to move in with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Is it okay for me to have sex before marriage? Why? Because it says in the Word of God, keep the marriage bed undefiled. Keep it holy and sacred. You don't have to ask God, is it wrong to steal? Or is it wrong to lie? Or is it wrong to, to, to do certain things? You don't have to ask God for those things because he's already pronounced it in his word. It's settled. And Jesus has already answered the if questions as, as it pertains to healing. He answered the can you heal question. Someone asked him one time, if you can heal, can you heal? And he says, what do you mean if I can heal? He's demonstrated it. We know he can heal. You don't have to ask God if you can do this. He has also answered that, am I willing to do this question? He's shown us in his word. He is not only able, he is also willing. We don't have to ask that question. So God's will is that the whole world would be saved. 
The whole world would be sozo, healed, mind, body, and soul. But the question is, does everyone go to heaven? Do they, church? Does everyone go to heaven? No. Jesus said in Peter, God, through the Holy Spirit, through Peter, says it is not God's will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. All should be saved. That's God's will. Then why do people go to hell? Why is that? The way to salvation, Jesus says, is narrow, and only a few find it. The way to damnation is wide, and many go that way. That's our reality. So if it's God's will that all should be saved, but we know that majority of us will not make it in there, then what's happening? We have to understand that though God has a sovereign will, he has spoken things that will happen regardless of what we say or do. There's a day coming when all of us will die. We're appointed once to die. There's a day that is proclaimed that the trumpet's going to sound and Jesus is going to return. There's nothing we're going to be able to do or say to change those things. There is a sovereign will. Things that God has pronounced will happen. But there's also, if you will, a personal will of God. There are some things that God has divinely in his sovereignty appointed for man's authority. There are things that he has given under our authority that we definitely have uh, the ability to affect. God, in his sovereignty, gave mankind dominion over the earth. In Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we were created anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things that he planned for us long ago. God has a will and a plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11 says God knows the plans he has for you. They're for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. We know that for every life that's born, God has a will and a plan. But the tragedy is, is not everyone lives up to that will and plan. Some people go through their entire lives and reject Jesus. Some are murdered in the womb and aren't able to even make the choice. So though he knows the plans he has for you, whether you realize those plans often are up to your response to Christ. In Romans chapter 11, verse 29, this is a key verse that we need to understand, especially as we're talking about gifts of the Holy Spirit and the gifts and calling of God. Romans eleven twenty nine says, The gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Another translation will say they're without repentance, which means what God gives you, he's never taking away. If he has given you salvation, he's never taking it away. If he's giving you the gifts of the Spirit, he's not taking them away. What God has given you, that will not be withdrawn. And God has put something in the life of every human being that's meant to reflect his divine nature, his divine character, the image of God in us. God has given mankind a free will. We are free to choose him or to reject him. We choose to follow his path or to go our own way. We choose to reap blessing or suffer consequences. Though it's not God's will that any of us would sin, God's not going to violate our will that allows us to choose to do so. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, don't eat out of this tree. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He did not stop them when they made the choice. So though God has a will, there's a sovereign will, there's also a personal will, and he's given mankind this free gift of free will, and he will not violate our freedom to choose to honor him or to reject him. This is why no one can say God sends people to hell. You'll hear that often a lot. Why, if God is so loving, why would he send people to hell? God doesn't send anyone to hell. God doesn't send anyone to hell. If 
there is somebody who's romantically infatuated with you that you detest and they call you every day they drop gifts off at your door they send you messages they blow up your Facebook or your social media account they're constantly asking you out and you tell them no 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 restraining order no get away from me right no matter what they do they cannot get into a relationship with you until you respond to them they don't have the power to force you into a relationship that takes a choice to respond and God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners Christ died for us he's demonstrating his love in the world he's calling out please please enter a relationship with me come all you who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest come to me come to me no matter how many times he calls out to you until you choose to respond to the call there is no relationship and so at the end of your life, if you have rejected Jesus, you have chosen to reject what Jesus is offering. He's not going to stand in the way of your choice. We need to understand this theologically because there are some things God has put under our power, under our authority, and what we do with that authority will determine our reality in many respects. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19 is a key verse to to memorize especially as we're talking about the authority Christ has given to the church he's speaking to his disciples before he ascends into heaven and he's giving them this snapshot of what it's going to be like when he leaves and pours out on the spirit and he says this I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. This is important because Jesus did not say, what I forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. What I permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. He's not talking about his sovereignty. We know the one who raised up from the dead who has all authority in heaven and on earth. If Jesus decreed it, it is so. He's God. But he's not talking about his sovereignty. He's talking about the church's authority through the name of Jesus and the blood of Christ. He's saying what you permit will be permitted. What you forbid will be forbidden. Why healing does not come many times is because we resist the devil to a point. We resist sickness or our circumstance to a point. But when our endurance and our patience runs out, we give in to it, we agree with it, and we accept or permit it. And we simply choose to believe this is our lot in life for the hand we've been dealt, especially when we're interceding on behalf of other people. I prayed and it didn't work. It must just be God's will. It's not God's will. His will is to heal. But when we choose to believe the lie, we empower the liar. And we permit the lie to have power and authority. You see, often our faith is measured by the level of the infirmity or the circumstance we're facing. We look at the sickness, we look at the circumstance, and we talk ourselves out of praying, out of fasting, out of uh, the things we know God calls us into and to pursue. We end up taking a step back and redirect what we're doing rather than pressing in. And what we're revealing in that moment is the truth, the belief we have in our heart that the circumstance we're facing is greater than the level of our faith. 
The circumstance or situation we're facing is greater than the level of our faith because if we believed God was going to do something, we would stay in it until it happened. Just like the chair you're sitting in. Which hopefully I hope you stay in the seat and you don't leave early. If we truly believed God was going to do something, we would stay in it until something shifted, until something changed. In James chapter 5, there's uh, just a snippet, there's a snapshot. James is writing about the great prophet Elijah as he's talking to the church about prayer. And he says this statement, we look at Elijah who's this great prophet of God. He's known for powerful miracles, one of the greatest prophets of Israel. And James says, Elijah was just as human as we are. He was just a common dude. There was nothing significant about him. But he says something specific. He says about Elijah, he says, when Elijah prayed for rain, God heard him and God sent the rain. And what he's getting us to calling us into is to go back into the story and look at 1 Kings chapter 18 where this story unfolds. And we see how God had sent a drought. It had not rained for something like three years. And the king comes to Elijah and says, call on God and pray for rain. We can't stand this drought any longer. And so Elijah heeds the voice of the king. He goes up to the mountain. He kneels down and he prays. And he calls out to his servant. And he says, go look out over the sea and see if anything happens. And nothing happens. So he goes back up to the mountain and he calls on God again. When he's done praying, he calls for his servant. He sends a servant to look out over the sea and see if anything's going on and nothing happens. And this routine continues to happen until Elijah arrives to the seventh time of prayer. On the seventh time, he sends the servant out to look over the sea and the servant sees a small cloud begin to form, just a small cloud. And Elijah says, God is getting ready to pour it down. And he says, tell the king to get out of here because the rain's going to overwhelm and you're not going to be able to get home. And so he tells the king, the king begins to go and a torrential rain pours down over the land. Elijah is just as human as we are. There's nothing more significant about Elijah than there is you and I. But James goes on to say, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The word fervent means a prayer in a person who won't give up. It's a I'm not going to quit prayer until what I'm asking for comes into fruition. A righteous person, the just, the righteous shall live by faith, Paul tells us. The righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And our level of faith will determine our level of anointing. You want the type of faith that can call rain from heaven? Then it determines, is determined by the level of faith you're willing to go after. You want the kind of faith that can call on God to make the sun stand still? Then it requires a faith that's willing to go after it until it happens. Our level of faith will determine our level of anointing. If we have an easy quit faith, we will have very little anointing. Very little power of God demonstrated in our lives. Romans chapter 12 verse 3. We've read this earlier in the series and we can apply this so many ways. But Paul is calling on the church to Take an evaluation of yourself, of your life in Christ, your faith. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. When we're talking about faith and walking in faith, if you have an offended heart, 
it will be easy for you to say, what do you mean I don't have enough faith? The enemy will start planting seeds of, of offense in your heart. What do you mean? Is there, you're telling me I, I haven't arrived to the same level you have? I've had conversations like this where I've just been on a journey. I've seen God do something. I have this new revelation, and I'm encouraging people to go after more. And they're, what, they're like, what do you mean? I don't have something you have. And, and it, this offense begins to rise up in people. And that's not what we're pointing out today. We're encouraging you to go after the more God has prepared for you. He says, take an honest evaluation of yourself. Be sober, not delusioned, not in denial. Honestly evaluate where you have. Why? Because God has assigned a measure of faith to every person. Not everyone's measure is the same. You cannot expect to be a day one new believer in Christ and have the same level of faith as someone following Christ for 50 years. You can't expect... If you have spent your entire faith life just coming to church and not doing anything with your faith, to have the same faith life as someone who's been passionately pursuing Christ for an extended period of time. If you're caught in routine, your faith is not going to be on the same level as someone else. And that's okay, because we're not all on the same part of the journey. This is why we need each other. This is why we're in the church. We're each part of the body of Christ, to encourage each other to love and good works. Be sober in your judgments, not to cut you down, but to encourage you because there's room for growth. There's places to go. When we believe we're better than what we are and we, we go after things that we're not ready for, it's easy for the enemy to sow discouragement when it doesn't happen. And you're faced with one of two realities in that place of discouragement. There's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with the Word. And both of those realities pull us away from Christ. I'm convinced that when we begin to walk in faith, God often delays so that our faith can grow, our maturity can grow, so that when it comes, we're ready for it, and we don't abuse it. When I began to seek words of knowledge and and healing, I would pray many times, and nothing would happen, and I'd walk away often embarrassed and feeling quite awkward, you know, and, and God was developing something in me, a character that said, it doesn't matter what people think. What matters is that I'm obeying the Lord. And as you develop that character, as you develop that, and I'm still on that journey, as you develop that, then God can pour more and more blessings into your life. So be honest about yourself, because delusion is a wide open door for discouragement, and the enemy is all over discouragement. This is why Paul continues in this passage to encourage the believers to walk in the lane that God has put them in. In verses 6 through 8, he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion of your faith, if God's given you faith in, the, in gifts of prophecy, walk in that and do it to the best of your ability, to the most your faith can, can strive for. If it's in serving in your serving, if it's in teaching in your teaching, if it's exhorting in your exhortation, if it's in contributing through um, money and generosity in your generosity, if it's in leading then with zeal, if it's in acts of mercy then in cheerfulness. What he's getting at is if you're walking in the lane God has put you in, you do it faithfully with your whole heart, you're going to reap blessing and that's going to encourage your faith to grow. Your faith will grow. It won't be discouragement that you're living under. It's going to be blessing and favor. When I encountered a healing for the first time, what that did to my faith, y'all, I'm telling you, 
It sent me to the roof. It made me hungry for more. It made me realize what I was born for, why I'm alive. It's incredible. And this is what he's encouraging us. When we walk in the lane we're traveling in, we'll see success, and that opens the door for our faith to grow. And this is important because you might be asking God for things that you're not quite ready for. And so the delay isn't because God is saying no or because he doesn't want to. It's because he's waiting for you to put your faith into action and for your faith to grow. You might be trying to access things of God you're not spiritually ready for. Him. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 James says, when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. This means do not doubt. For a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided. Other translations will say a double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. You have a divided loyalty in you. It's between God and the world. And here many of taking this out of context i believe they're saying see you can't have any doubt if you have any doubt at all god's not going to give you what you're asking for and that's not what james is saying here he's the double-minded person is saying you are one part of you is passionate about being involved in the world engaged in earthly things pursuing the things of the world the other part of you kind of wants to do what god wants you to do and you're tossed back and forth between where your passion lies and so your heart is, is torn. God's going to wait until you fully surrender so that you can be used fully by him. And how we see this in, in Scripture is we're, we're looking at this. I really believe what God is saying is he's calling believers to stop looking from earth up to heaven, trying to figure out the things of heaven. And he's calling us to live as citizens of heaven and look down on the earth from a heavenly perspective. God wants us to look through his eyes on the world and see how broken it is and see how he wants to redeem it rather than being infatuated with the world and trying to figure out how God wants you to fit in it. A divided loyalty means double-minded, two souls, two minds. One hand wants to reach out to Jesus, but it's not enough to be fully convinced. So the other hand reaches out to do what you can rationally understand and tangibly hold on to in the world. If you're not really believing God's promises in your life, you're not going to be living through those promises. You're going to be hoping his promises are true, but truly believing that they're probably not, which is why that faith is not evident in your life. So James is saying you can't really expect to receive anything from the Lord with a divided heart. Why? Because it's impossible to please God without faith. And if you're not acting on your belief, it's not faith. I've seen God heal many things. But being honest, there's some things that intimidate me to pray for. I'll walk through the store and I'll see a person who's got physical abnormalities and crippled. They might be walking or they might be limping or on crutches. And I know God can, but there's a part of me that's not quite there. And so I'm praying for greater faith. So that when God wants to move, I can get out of his way. And he can do it. And he can reveal his love to more and more people. And that's what it's about. It's not about your worth or your value in the kingdom. God proved your value by giving his life for you. It's about growing your faith so he can use you in greater and greater ways. In Mark eleven twenty three, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done 
for him. Notice he does not say when the mountain will move. He just says it will move. We're not in charge of the timing, but we're in charge of the faith. We believe in God's promises, and it will happen, but the timing is up to the Lord. What you pray today ascends before the Lord and remains forever in his heart. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament, that people cried out to the Lord, and what seems like generations later, it says, and then the Lord remembered the cry of his people. And then the Lord remembered the cry of his people. And then the Lord remembered the prayer of the people. It's not because God forgot. It's because there was an appointed time where he knew they'd be ready for the manifestation of that prayer. Israel was in captivity for 400 years. And then the Lord remembered the cry of his people. And you've got to believe they were praying daily for freedom, for redemption. In the book of Daniel, we see Daniel begin praying and fasting for something that was on his heart. And 21 days after he began praying, an angel shows up to tell him, look, the moment you prayed, God heard you and sent me with the answer, but I was delayed in the spirit by demonic forces. The moment we pray, even before we pray, God knows. He says, Jesus said he knows we're going to ask before we even ask it. But the moment we pray... Heaven goes to, act, goes to work. What we forget oftentimes is that there's a real enemy who's in opposition to the things of God. Someone once said that when we pray, the angels get their heavenly instructions. That your, power, your prayer is so powerful that you're assigning the angel realm their duties when you pray, especially when you pray according to the word of God and you declare the truth. And if that's the case, then we need to pray without ceasing but you know because we're human and we've yet to receive the fullness of his promises we struggle with our faith we wrestle with our flesh and that's why i'm so thankful for the word of god because if we just go off of some of those verses that seem like we have to walk without any doubt then for god to do anything with us it can be very defeating and that's not what the word of god is telling us in matthew 17 verses 14 through 20 we read an account of a man who had a boy who was sick we begin to see really what the Word of God is teaching us about faith. Verse 14, it says, At the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. A man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. And so I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And Jesus said, You faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and the boy, and it left him. And from that moment, the boy was well. What I love about this passage of Scripture is that this doesn't color the picture of Jesus we're used to reading about. If someone came up to me and said, Hey, um, I prayed for this person. Why didn't they get healed? And today, I looked at them and said, You faithless and corrupt person. How, must I, how long must I put up with you? They're going to be like, You big meanie, I'm going to the church down the street. You know, they'd up and leave, right? Jesus has a powerful way of offending the mind to expose the heart. He will offend your mind to expose your heart. And this is what offense does. It, someone said that it's often that God allows your spouse to bring the worst out of you so that God can reveal it to you. He offends your mind to reveal your heart. And here he rebuked his disciples. But what did it do? In verse 19, it says, Afterward, the disciples asked Jesus privately. It caused his disciples to ask a question. Why couldn't we cast out 
the demon. And his reply was, you don't have enough faith. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. A mustard seed is not the biggest seed. Jesus is not saying, the word of God is not saying, you must have complete and perfect faith for God to move. He's saying, you just need a little bit. But in this passage, when it says, your unbelief, or you didn't have enough faith, that word really means faithlessness. They were unfaithful. It's virtue of being unreliable, fickleness, inconsistency. It is not consistent. It is fickle. What does it mean? It means when they were praying, they saw the malady and they thought, that's too much for me. And they quit pressing in. In the very same passage in Mark chapter 9, Jesus said this can only be cast out through fasting and prayer, which means to us, when you see something impossible, it's not your cue to quit it's your cue to press in to go deeper to seek the lord even more passionately and he tells his disciples if you had done it like this it would have been done for you this is why he rebuked them and the church needs a rebuke today to stop giving up and stop quitting to press in why were they unfaithful it's because they were lacking in that true faith belief in the divine power of jesus and the power of the word of god a true belief that causes motivating action to follow see it's not that god had not given them enough faith when he graced them it's simply because they let the size of their infirmity surpass the size of their god they let their circumstance surpass the size of their god so rather than pressing in until the healing came they gave in to the doubts in the midst of the battle and Jesus said, if you're going to pray, you want the power of God to be released in you. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be opened. Continue to press in. And you'll move the Father's heart to act on your behalf. Hebrews eleven six again, it says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. God is a rewarder. He is a rewarder. That word diligent means continual, not giving up. So why don't we see healing and miracles like we want to see in the body of Christ and in the church? Sometimes it boils down to number three, the third reason, a lack of faith in the one asking for the miracle. There's simply just a lack of faith. That doesn't mean you're less than or you're not as saved as someone else. That just means that there's not that belief in you motivates you to pursue until it happens i'm here to tell you beloved jesus gave his life on the cross he rose from the dead he went to heaven so he could pour down his spirit so that you could do the same works he has done and even greater that is his will that's what he wants but the question is do we want to press into that the fourth reason and quickly why we don't see miracles especially in healing it's not just the faith in the one asking, but it can also be because of the unbelief in the one being prayed for. Now, I want to be clear. There is a difference between struggling to believe and rejection of Jesus. There's a difference between struggling to believe and the rejection of Jesus. You will never see in Scripture a person who goes to Jesus to be healed who is turned away. Ever. There's one account, the closest we get to it, a Gentile woman comes to the Lord 
and he almost ignores her when she starts asking him about her child. But eventually he has a conversation. There's an illustration about giving uh, food from the table to dogs, and she motivates him through continuing to ask and, and interceding for her child. He says he's moved with compassion, and he gave her what she asked for. God loves the whole world. And even this woman that he was not necessarily there to redeem or to save, he came primarily to the Jewish people, she still got to benefit because her faith motivated the heart of God to act. Jesus never turned anyone away. In Mark chapter 9, there's two passages that we'll look at. In Mark chapter 9 is the first, again, as this man comes to intercede or ask Jesus for healing for his son, he's struggling with faith. He's the one that comes to Christ and says, if you can heal my son, then please do so. And Jesus asks, what do you mean if I can heal? And the man responds to the Lord. It says, the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. The man struggled with this question, can God actually do this? Can Jesus actually heal? And the boy was healed. The presence of doubt does not disqualify you from a miracle. God's not a Nazi. Again, if he required perfect faith from all of us, not one of us would be here in this room because we would not be saved and none of us could be healed because we can't, or it's impossible to have perfect faith. Often, healing happens to encounter us as a way to open the door of faith and reveal God's unconditional love into our lives. The other account is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. A man with leprosy comes to Jesus and asks for a healing. The man with leprosy approached him and knelt before the Lord, and the man said, If you are willing, can you heal me and make me clean? And of course, Jesus healed this man. The phrase, if you're willing, the statement doesn't really show or display a lot of faith in the Lord. See, in both accounts, the, the man with unbelief and the man with leprosy, one believed that Jesus would, but not necessarily that he could. And the other one believed Jesus could, but didn't necessarily believe that he would. Both had unbelief, but both walked away healed. Why? Because the presence of doubt doesn't disqualify you from a miracle. God is moved with compassion when we struggle. This week, uh, we turned on the attic fan in our house. We often do that at night to kind of cool the upstairs because our air conditioner doesn't quite reach up there. Uh, throughout the hot days, and uh, my son Asher opened his window. He does, doesn't have a screen on his window, and he opened his window so the air could move through, and something got into his eye, and it, it scratched his eye, and it really hurt, and, you know, we tried to help him before bed, and we got him to, you know, calm down and go to sleep. Well, he wakes up in the middle of the night, like three or four o'clock in the morning, and that's zombie time for me. I, like, only less than one percent of my brain activity is allowed to work at around that time, so I'm just like, you know, groggy, getting out of bed. My wife's getting out of bed, trying to figure out. He's like sobbing, my, kind of you know, really going on about his eye. And his eye is bloodshot. Looks like somebody like stabbed him in the eye. It was terrible. I thought we might have to take him to the emergency room. It was, it was pretty red. So I'm dumping eye drops in his eye, putting a cold washcloth on his eye. And, and you know, Tony's praying over him. I'm praying over him, just asking God to heal him. And Finally, he calms down enough to go to bed, and, and he said that he, he prayed, and after he prayed, the pain went away. So he's more spiritual than we are. Um, but, but the deal is this. When he woke up, it didn't matter what time of day. When my kids are in pain and they're struggling, if I'm a good father, I would do anything I could to help them. But yet the enemy has convinced many of you that God's not a good father, 
and that he's looking on your sickness, your malady, your, your pain, and just not caring at all about what you're going through. And it's so far from the truth. Our daddy is a good daddy. And if the cross doesn't display his passionate desire to heal you and make you whole, I don't know what can get our attention. But his desire is to heal you. The presence of doubt doesn't disqualify you because you're his kid. He wants to redeem you. But sometimes things get in the way. The only passage we have where unbelief prevented a miracle is in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Jesus goes back to his hometown. It says, Jesus left the part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their, what's that say? Unbelief. He couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people to heal them. Notice, some still got healed. He placed his hands on a few sick people and some were healed. But the majority of people in his hometown left without an encounter from God. They left untouched. Why? Because the scripture says they're unbelief. Does that mean because they had doubt? No, it doesn't. The key is in verse number three. It says they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. There's nothing significant about this man. He's just another guy. They were deeply offended, and they refused to believe in him. It's not that they struggled with belief. They refused. They denied the identity and the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And it wasn't that they doubted or struggled with faith to believe. They refused. They closed their heart. They said, no, I don't want anything to do with that. You see, Jesus is not going to give you a gift you don't want. He's not going to give you a gift you refuse. It'd be like a parent going to the store and picking something up for their kid, just thinking about them for the day, and they come home and say, hey, look what I got you, and their kid's like, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want that. After you wipe your tears from being completely crushed, you're going to take that thing back to the store and get your money back and go buy something you want. You know, it's, it's just this. God's not going to give you a gift you don't want. And I believe the gifts of the Spirit that have been made available to all who believe have ceased in the body of Christ to a degree because there are many who fall in line with this belief system called cessationism that with the completion of Scripture, the gifts of the Spirit have kind of died away. That this, what I see is truly a false belief, a demonic belief. They've caused the Spirit to be quenched because many believe God no longer works that way. That all healing is up to the sovereign will of God and and if it happens, it's just going to happen. Nothing I do is going to affect or move God's heart. And I grew up in churches like this. As a matter of fact, I was a staunch defender of that way of believing. I used to argue with people all the time. Uh, I worked at a Christian bookstore when, when I was younger. And um, I used to argue with the people there that went to charismatic churches and tried to, with my King James Bible, tried to convince them why their charismatic ways were faulty, trying to convert them into being good Baptists. 
So I know what it's like to be on the other side of this conversation and the difficulty it really is to go from one side to the other. Because when you're taught something your entire life, it's almost like denying truth and, and looking at everyone you've trusted that's invested in you as misleading you in some way. It's a very difficult transition. But that way of thinking has taught many believers to not only doubt, but to reject anything that comes from the Holy Spirit, even calling it demonic. So why would God want to give the church a gift that it most surely refuses? We used to ask this question a lot growing up when I was a part of those churches. Why is God healing over there and God's not healing over here? Why are the gifts of the Spirit at work in those kind of churches and not over here? And our answer was simply, well, they're just confused or they're just misled rather than looking at our own hearts we were the ones who are actually denying and rejecting the gift that god wanted to give see there's a difference between struggling in the midst of pursuing an outright rejection why doesn't god heal in some churches and he does in others is because in the churches he doesn't heal they've often rejected the gifts of the spirit so they're not able to fully receive the more of god that comes through the holy spirit so, beloved, doubts don't disqualify you from a healing. They actually encourage you to press in to greater faith. What closes the door, what quenches the spirit ultimately is rejection of God's promises. So when a miracle doesn't happen, when we're praying for healing for someone and the miracle doesn't happen, that's really our signpost to stop and check our own heart. To ask this question, where is my faith? Where is my heart? Where do I need to grow? What is God doing in this situation that I need to press into? Am I believing? Am I trusting? Am I fully committed to the promises of God? Am I studying the scriptures so that his word can implant deep in my heart and I can, and I can begin to really meditate and come into agreement and alignment with the truth of God's word? Am I really willing to continue to press into this miracle until it happens? Again, this is why we need the body of Christ, because where my faith lacks, yours can make up the difference. Jesus said, where two agree concerning anything, my Father will do it for you. And James says, if there's any sick among you, call the elders of the church together to lay their hands on them and pray the prayer of faith, anointing with oil, and healing will come. We need the body of Christ. We need to help each other when we're struggling. So the presence of doubt does not disqualify us from a miracle. But rejection of Jesus and his promises will quench the spirit. I'm going to close with a personal story that happened not, not long ago. I'm kind of foggy on exactly when, but I think about a year or so ago, my uh, mother and father-in-law's little half-dog, not even a half-dog, Chip, uh, he's a teacup poodle, doesn't even qualify as an actual dog. But... Um, my wife and my mother-in-law went into a joint venture to breed dogs, so we got a Yorkie, and they got a teacup poodle, and we breed Yorkie poos, and if any of you have been to Miss Virginia's house, you see the result of that litter. It's a little adorable thing. Lick you to death. But Chip had a tragic accident and broke his leg, and his bones were so small that the doctors weren't really hopeful that his uh, leg would heal, but they put a pin in his, in his leg, put a cast on it, and the dog had that cast on for forever. And you want to see a completely pathetic animal. You see a little tiny dog like that with a cast on. It's terrible. But he milked it for all, for all it was worth. I don't think the kids put him down during all that time, months and months and months. 
Well, he finally gets his cast off, and everything seemed well, and then he fell down the stairs and broke his leg again. And they took him back to the doctor, and the doctor looked at his leg, and the bone had deteriorated, and there wasn't enough bone to pin, so the doctor said they were going to have to amputate the leg. And of course, you know, even though he's a little rat dog, we love him, and so it made us sick. And so we began praying for him. God, heal his leg, heal his leg. And every doctor visit, no, it's not healed. Looks like amputation. And so finally, like my wife and I and my sister-in-law, we were over at the house, and we're just like, we, you know, we just don't accept that this dog is going to get his leg amputated. Like God loves everything he created, and just something in us is just saying, this dog is going to keep his leg. And so we took him into the room because we didn't want to look like freaks laying on hands on this dog. And we prayed over him as we're praying. Like all three of us got some kind of vision or impression that God was healing his leg. I literally saw in my mind the bones growing back. But he was still scheduled for the leg amputation. And so, you know, Lori was going to take him in for the procedure. And Tony was like, you got to have him check it. Got to have him check it before they cut his leg off. Got to have him check it. So he's in there for the procedure and they do an x-ray. And wouldn't you know it, God regrew those dumb bones. Praise the Lord. He regrew the bones. Now, did that dog have faith to be healed? No. The dog's an idiot. He's a moron. But in Matthew 10, 31, the Bible says, Don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. If God cares for his creation and takes care of it, how much more is his heart toward you? If God's going to heal a dog, he's going to heal you. Do you believe his promises? It's time we stop limiting God's power by measuring his ability through our limitations. It's time we stop limiting God's healing power by measuring his ability through our limitations. I'll leave you with this verse, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. If you missed everything, but you can camp out on this, this is what I hope you absorb and meditate on this week. Paul says, Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power, at work where? Who's the us? It's you. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power, at work within you, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. All glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, there is a power at work within you if you belong to Christ Jesus and you've received the Holy Spirit. There is a miracle working power God is anxiously waiting to release. The question is, is do you believe it? And do you have the faith to go after it? In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we just thank you in your word that we can find the answer to every struggle, everything we face. The enemy has been so good in speaking lies and convincing us through lies that we've got to become something more, that we've got to do something extra, that there's more than just simply the cross of Christ and the power of his shed blood and his glorious resurrection that needs to come to pass before we can be healed. So he's sown seeds of doubt in us, God, that have 
deep roots, many through traditions that, and religious traditions that go back generations. God, I ask you to pluck the roots in Jesus' name. God, your will is for us all to be healed. You desire all of us to grow in faith, but the Bible says Jesus was as human as we are, tempted in every way, and he is empath empathetic with our situation. He knows our struggle, and you know, God, that until we become like you in the glorified body at the resurrection, we're going to struggle with this life, with this flesh, even with doubt. But doubt for us is an open door to believe you and trust you even more. So God, I pray that all of us would be honest with ourselves. And we would look to you and say, God, I want to give you more of myself because I want you to work more powerfully in me. Not so that my name can be great, but because Jesus is great. And I want people to see how great he is through my life. God, we thank you for being able and willing to heal. And God, we ask for the discernment and the understanding when the healing doesn't come to know how to press in so that we can come into alignment with what your will is. Teach us how to war in the spirit that we can stand against the wiles of the enemy. We can defend against his arrows, his fiery arrows, God. And through the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, we can slay the dragon. God, you've called us to be disciples who follow Jesus. Not simply students who learn facts and information. God, I pray that today we'd have a fire lit in us that would motivate us to follow even harder after Jesus. That we'd find purpose in everything we do from, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, God. That we would see your hand at work. We would see your spirit move. We would hear your voice more clearly, God. And we wouldn't be blind to the opportunities that you've given us to be your hands and feet in this world. God, I pray today if there's someone here that doesn't know you as, Jesus, as Savior. Lord, if there's someone watching online that maybe has gone through religious tradition their whole life, but they don't really know you as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray that today they would cry out that simple prayer, giving you their heart. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't know the Holy Spirit, like we've been talking about today. You want to have a relationship with God, not just so that you can get into heaven, but so that you can know who you were created to be. You can realize what it is to have a life in Christ, that new and abundant life as you walk in the unconditional love of God and the joy that is a life in the Holy Spirit. The Scripture says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You want to experience the life Jesus meant for you to live right now, you can just pray this simple prayer with me. Say, Father, I know I've been broken, but Jesus came and went to the cross so I can be healed and be made whole. I receive that gift today, and I give you a gift, my heart and my life. Forgive me of my sins. I place my faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection. He now is my Lord and Savior, now and forever. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to live for you. In Jesus' name.
us at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.